one. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast, the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. Oh, my word. Am I ever, Neil? I'm so excited about our guest, Kelly Cornish, who has been involved in inclusion and diversity and had big positions at Wells Fargo and has changed the world in so many ways. I am so impressed. You have won so many awards that I had to write them down. Uh, one of the most influential women in corporate America, top 25 inch influential black women, most powerful women in banking, diversity and inclusion and equity award. It goes on and on and an author. It's work. How will you show up? I love that. Uh, and now with TD Jakes Foundation that is rocking the world and has big plans to keep doing it. Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Kim, and thank you so much, Neil. I am beyond excited uh, to be here and just to spend some time with you. So thank you. Great. Yeah, well, thanks. So uh, somehow, P.D. Jakes Foundation stole you away from Wells Fargo. How did that happen? I mean, it's it's a dream. I'll just say that. You know, um, I have been following the Jakes family for decades, um, you know, T.D. Jakes, his wife, Sarita Jakes, uh, their family, they have just been so inspirational uh, when it comes to my faith and uh, just the life that I wanted to live. And so it's so interesting, um, you know, Wells Fargo uh, decided, you know, they were going to join him, join forces with him in a partnership. And I did have the opportunity to open a couple of doors and, and make some introductions around that. And so I was coming to the end of my career at Wells and said that, you know, I'm going to retire and go figure my life out. And a couple of weeks before then, I get a call from T.D. Jakes to say, would you be interested in coming to run my foundation? And I was like, oh, so um, I was not expecting it. Uh, but you just never know how the work that you do over the years, you just never know what's leading to. And I tell everyone that all of the roles that I've had, um, this truly culminates all that I've done. And so um, it was literally through relationships and literally through the work of trying trying to help him create a partnership. Um, and here I am. And so excited about it and excited about being on the pull through side of that partnership um, and, and leading the foundation. So that's why I got here. How does the foundation relate to TD Jakes and itself? Like how his whole mission and vision relates to the foundation? Well, you know, he does have a, and I, we call it an ecosystem within. Um, it's, we are one entity of the TD Jakes group. Um, many people are familiar with him with the Potter's House and they see him on Sundays, uh, but there are other entities, TD Jakes Enterprises. That's where you see your movies, your books, your podcast, you see TD Jakes Real Estate, that's where affordable housing is being built, senior housing is being built. And then you have uh, the foundation. And the foundation is literally probably the youngest entity on the block and formed about three years ago to really begin to think about what is his legacy? Uh, 40 years of ministry and all the work that he's doing, where will that kind of live beyond him? And so that is really the birth of uh, the T.G. Jakes Foundation three years ago. And really his focus is on really trying to understand and be a catalyst and an engine and changing the trajectory of um, economically disadvantaged communities. So in so many ways we do that and I'll share that. But um, right now, you know, if, if I 
if I were to really nail the vision for him, it's really about using or leveraging the foundation to be part of his legacy and all the work that he's done over the past 40 years. I love that. I love that. I love him. Actually, one of my favorite, my not one of my, my top favorite album of all time that's dating me, I realize album, Sacred Love Songs is T.D. Jakes. I love it. Love it. It is the best ever, ever, ever. So yes, you are doing so many different things. I love it that he wants to leave a even more lasting legacy as if the legacy he's already leaving isn't big enough. I, right. I mean, he's he's done so much over the years and he's been such an honorable man and, and a man to be admired and followed. And I, I love him. And so I love that he's doing this and that how great for you to be a part of it and to really spearhead it for him. He's fortunate to have you. And I know that STEAM is one of the big pushes, right? You want to talk about STEAM? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, before I get into the programmatic elements, if you think about what I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, there's research out there that shows by the year 2053 that the net worth of the Black community will be zero if someone does not move on changing that that trend. So he speaks about that sometimes when he's he's talking and that really sits on his heart to say, what are things that we can really do to help change that trend and change that forecast? So we think about STEAM, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And we think about what do we introduce the younger population to ages 11 to 17 um, how can we introduce them to careers early and hopefully then they'll go to college, then they'll come out and they be, will be these great scientists and mathematicians and everyone engaged in AI that can really get these high paying jobs that can literally change the trajectory of their lives. So um, we start early with our STEAM academies um, and we host academies every summer. Um, we also adopt schools that are part, that have a STEAM curriculum and lean into them in investments with their teachers and their, and their faculty um, to say, we wanna help you practice code, no pun intended, but really practice code on how do we make um, life different for that next generation. And it starts by them having access to high paying jobs. And literally it's not going from $9 an hour to $11 an hour. I mean, we're talking about, you know, salaries that will literally take their family from one tax bracket to another. And so that's why we're passionate about STEAM. Um, and that's just one, uh, but hopefully that answers your question about that's why we're going after it and, and the way and the way we're going to approach it. That makes me really excited, and I hope to be able to help you in any way to be part of that. I'm a former educator myself. I had a tutoring business called Total Tutor that I'm relaunching again, but I've worked in the in all different areas in education in my career as an educational advocate and everything. And the bottom line is we're not challenging our kids enough through this. And with STEAM, you're going to really reach the areas of where we're going. And AI Absolutely. is where we're going. We're going okay. to technology. And if these kids okay. are not exposed to technology, you just said that. And by being another resource, because the public school system, they just aren't going to be able to handle it with the right. amount of funding and needs to bring in an organization like your organization to really mm -hmm. change and transform and give them that hope. 
look at some of these charter schools that have made a difference in careers for kids, certain ones that just like transform them to certain parts of life. And then they come back to that community. You have Mm -hmm. to say that the bar can be as high as you want now because the doors are open for everyone because of technology. And we have to open it up to everyone. Agreed. Absolutely. And then we take the step further and we're a higher mixers. We host two a year um, and we have, oh gosh, hundreds of people that attend. But really the focus with the employers is to bring to this higher mixer jobs that that feed into this whole technology. So we have Amazon, we have the bankers there, all of these people that are using technology. And we want we bring in employers that are able to upskill parents. They may not have the, have the skill set now, but Amazon is saying, you come in, we'll help you, we'll teach you. Um, others and other employers like UPS, um, the different food stores, everyone that's moving toward technology. And so it's just amazing. We, we hosted one um, in Dallas back in October and in a three hour period had over 1,400 people, and to date, we know that 500 people have been hired from that mixer and 200 on the spot that day. So literally, again, these are high-paying jobs. So they'll go back, and they'll go back to their homes, and they can make a difference in their homes and then provide opportunities for their children. So it's literally a life cycle. It's from, as I say, from the cradle to the grave. How do we get these kids engaged, get their parents upskilled, um, and continue. And then with that, you can buy housing that leads into our affordable housing that leads into financial literacy. Um, and so this is how we're going to chip away and change that trend that I talked about earlier about uh, a projection of the Black community's net worth being zero by the year 2053. So he's really leaning into it. And Neil, to your point, um, you know, schools can't do it alone. The government can't do it alone. The churches can't do it alone. It's going to take an ecosystem. It's going to take the village to really change change the way that um, our nation is going. So yeah, that's absolutely. our part. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And, you know, I realize that in our country, there are still people who don't recognize the inequities that are happening with the Black community. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why that is, because it seems to be out there. But there are still people that are just kind of ignorant to that and not doing anything to help it. When So it seems to me the first thing that needs to happen is people need to recognize that they're, that this is happening, right, before they take action and become part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And it's awareness. It is. It's awareness and education. You know, when you think about um, what makes people excel, it is education. It is exposure. Um, and just, you know, opportunity and access. And so that's that's what we're trying to provide. And, and you're right, um, over the holidays, my husband and I, we, we always play games with our kids and our kids are grown. But this year I said, we're not going to have a game. We gave them all that article and had them read it and say, okay, now what's your part? Because it's, it's, it's the community as well, understanding, like, I need to contribute to buying a home. I need to contribute to... Mm-hmm buy and stop. I need to understand what wealth is. So we've started changing the conversation in our home around, you know, generational wealth. Um, and so it's it, it's something we all have to do and we all own um, everyone because as, you know, the, the tide rises when everyone yeah, rises. Absolutely. So, 
I watched the, uh, is this kind of everything hitting full circle? I watched Tyler Perry's documentary last Saturday and it blew me away. And TD was, you know, a little bit of part of that story in so many ways, but you look at specifically stories like TDs, stories like Tyler Perry's that they can do this. And the more organizations that come on board, tell these stories and, and have success stories, the more people will buy into that there can become this, as you talked about generational wealth, that yeah. first people to get, you know, go to college or get a great job, then the process begins. Look at Atlanta and how Atlanta changed the, the one of the, the hubs of where, you know, there's many, many successful black uh Mm-hmm. people in Atlanta. Why can't this be all over the United States the same way as Atlanta is? And seeing that story and saying that there's an opportunity, that's what T.D. Jakes is trying to bring to the table. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad, Neil, you mentioned Atlanta because that is our next stop in 2024. You know, um, Tyler Perry and T.D. Jakes um, both purchased property at Fort McPherson, the former army base in Atlanta. And Tyler Perry has been there for a little while. We will come in this year. At the foundation, we will have an office there um, and it's projected to build 300 homes, mixed income, mixed use, retail, schools. Um, We're just so excited that these two, you know, very honorable people have come together to say, this is how we're going to help change the world. And this is how we're going to change generational wealth in um, um, disadvantaged communities. So um, just so much is going on in 2024 and we're excited that um we have we have a leader like td jakes that has the vision and he is such a risk taker and i love that because you know coming from banking we're not that risky um and so (laughs) i'm learning so much about him but literally that's how you change you step out and say yes we're going to do this and this is how we're going to do it so powerful stuff kim i guess a quick question before we go, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Well, I wrote a book about love. It's over my shoulder. I I did this eat, pray, love experience and and lived a year trying to figure out the true meaning of love. Most of the time I was in Haiti. And to me, this organization exudes love. How do you see love playing a part? Like, what does that mean to you? You know, I um I think about so my husband just retired as a pastor uh, of 30 years as a senior pastor of a church uh, this December. And, you know, we at our church, we used to have um, we, the, the verse we would always use is let love abound. And it was really around you have to love each other. You might not like each other, but you have to love each other because with love, that's how the world changes. And literally within, and and I bring that to the foundation, Um, you know, we care holistically about the community and it's so much deeper than what people see on the surface. Um, You know, T.D. Jakes, as well as myself, we came from very humble beginnings. Um, You know, when they say, you know, you didn't know you were poor, uh, we just, we, we had love all around us. And I think that is, if we can continue to show people we love them through the programmatic efforts and the way that we love on them and care for them about providing the way we provide opportunity and access, they will see that we care. And when people care and they know you care, then um, things happen. Awesome. For the good. You know what I was going to say, Kelly, I want to be part of this in some sort of way with the education part of what I'm doing in my businesses and to help the TTJX foundation and research AI, anything. So we'll definitely have to stay connected. Best place we can, people can find information on the TTJX foundation. Where can they go? At tdjfoundation.org. 
stdjfoundation.org. And that is the same for all of our social media handles, TDJ Foundation. All right. Well, thanks again. Appreciate it. This was the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Author's Corner. As I guess Frank Fiore is cornering the books in book marketing because first he started a podcast on Western authors, and now he's taken over relaunching my Author's Corner from 13 years ago. Frank, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest. It's going to be really an interesting guest. I'm doing well, Neil. And yes, this uh, Dr. Housewright sounds like a very interesting guest, and we're going to find out more about him. Can you, can, uh, anyway, <clears throat> so welcome, Dr. Housewright. Now, can I ask your first question? Uh, is that, what are you a doctor of? I am a doctor of education, uh, educational leadership. A PhD doctor. Yes, okay. yes, sir. Okay, so we're in educational leadership, and then we'll get right into the wrestling, because I'm a former teacher. Okay. I have a master's degree in education, but that was after wrestling. I okay. went back and and retired from wrestling to be a teacher. And then I was an educational advocate and I'm a tutoring business before and I'm relaunching a tutoring business. But tell me more about the educational leadership real quick. Uh, so I became a teacher 16 years ago. Um, I've been in education for 16 years. I was a sports writer before that. My undergrad is journalism. Um, went back to school when the uh, newspapers started to fold because of the internet boom and uh, decided to become an educator. So I, I coached and taught for 16 years. I was an assistant principal at uh, School for the Blind uh, for two years. And uh, now I'm just uh, kind of getting back into things and supervising study hall at a high school. So uh, that gives me a chance to write and uh, still, you know, do my journalism stuff as well. Oh, wow. So you kind of taking a sabbatical in education for a second? Um, you I, I would say, you know, after COVID, uh, teaching became a little more difficult. And uh, I was a middle school teacher. And I think I just got, kind of got burnt out on middle school kids. They're just a handful. Oh, I know that because I taught middle school too. Yeah. yeah. It's... But I, I love high school. And, uh, you know, so being a supervisor of study hall, I'm, I'm in the classroom every day with high school kids. I can help them out with whatever they need. But it also gives me a lot of time to write, which is where most of the book was written, was in a classroom while uh, I was supervising study hall. That's, that's fantastic. All right. So Frank, go the question. What about, I'm going to ask Frank Fiore, was you ever a pro wrestling fan, Frank, being growing up in New York? Uh, no, I wasn't, but that's what, but I do want to ask uh, Jeremy here and I hope he doesn't get insulted, but you know, the pro wrestling thing, uh, sport, how much of that is real and how much of that is acting? I would say, it's it's choreographed. So what you see is planned out for the most part. But when they take shots with chairs and all that, that's real. Um, and of course, I appreciate not using the word fake. We I tell people we don't use the F word. Um, that's that's something that I'm. I'm a, yeah, Frank, I'd have to stretch you if you did that. If you're in the ring with me, and I'd show you exactly. Like if somebody tries to say it's fake when I jump in the ring on Sunday, I can shoot wrestle on these people, these kids that are getting trained now. They think, hey, I'm getting the ring with you, and I ended up in a shoot match in Germany with somebody who literally wouldn't sell for me. That was half the size of me, and I had to take him out and pretty much beat him up in the ring. So <laughs> yeah, so the word fake's not yes choreographed. And and fixed, yes. Scripted, scripted is scripted, a good one. Yes, yeah, scripted is a good one too. I think that the business has changed in so so many ways. So tell us the name of the book, really quickly. So, so I, the, show, show sure, us it. Sure, the cover. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I actually have one right here. Uh huh. Love the um, show. 
For the Love of the Show, Pro Wrestling Fans Tell Their Stories is the name of the book. Right. And, and yeah. And so I so why did you write it? Because how many years you've been a so you've been a fan forever. Uh what and why did you write it? What made you say this is the book I'm gonna write? So I've been wanting to write a book for a long, long time. And um after I wrote my dissertation for my doctorate, which was a hundred pages, I thought, you know what? I've already pounded out this thing, which was boring and, and miserable to go through. Uh, why not do something that I enjoy? And it was either write about the Kansas City Chiefs because they're my favorite football team um, or pro wrestling. So I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to shoot photos for a lot of WWE events here in St. Louis. And even I've went to Las Vegas and New York to shoot shows. And um, in doing that and traveling to WrestleManias and such, I met a bunch of fans who I've become friends with, uh, a select group of people. And we meet up a couple times a year at different shows. And we've just created this bond. We message each other every day about wrestling and talk about different things. And then once or twice a year, we get together at, at a WrestleMania or a SummerSlam and hang out. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty cool story that I've met these really cool people, a couple guys from California, a couple guys from Canada. You know, if I've met these people, there's got to be other people out there with really cool stories that, uh, about how wrestling has affected them. And so I just started kind of putting the word out and searching and, you know, going on the internet and posting, you know, I was looking for people with stories and I found six different uh, individuals with really cool stories that appealed to me. Who were the six that you highlighted? So the first guy I talked to was a gentleman named Justin Deming, who is originally from St. Louis, but now I believe he lives in Connecticut. Um, he, was a huge fan of pro wrestling, so much so that he decided to get an actual replica title belt tattoo around his waist that took two and a half years. Um, so I talked to him about that. I told that story. The second guy I talked to was a gentleman named Kyle Scarborough, who's a tattoo artist from Washington, Missouri. And he actually befriended Bray Wyatt, uh, from WWE, and he actually designed, drew up the concept for a mask that Bray Wyatt debuted a few years back uh, as The Fiend. Uh, became probably the best-selling merch that WWE had that year. Uh, and while I was writing this, uh, Bray Wyatt passed away, um, which kind of changed the story a little bit, and it was something that I really had to add to it. Um, so then I interviewed another gentleman named Kurt Gannon, who is a indie pro wrestler from kansas city and it just told his story about being a fan and trying to make it into a bigger organization he was on the cusp of getting signed by nwa and then tore uh, a tendon in his shoulder so he's basically starting over from scratch right now and um so i told his story and then i also talked to a, a young man named Derek baker who has a following of 3 million people on social media. Wow. He runs, a, uh, his sister runs Baker Banter. And Derek is a 26-year-old guy with Down syndrome. And he is just a huge, the, the biggest wrestling fan I've ever met in my life. He goes backstage and meets all the wrestlers. He travels to all the shows with his family. And he's become kind of a uh, spokesperson for, you know, individuals with handicap. Uh, you know, issues. And, you know, it's just a great story to tell. Uh, another 
individual in the book <clears throat> was Izzy Moreno. She's a young girl from Florida. And uh, I first came across Izzy listening to a show called Busted Open on Sirius Radio. And uh, Izzy would call in at 10 years old, 12 years old, and have more knowledge of pro wrestling than most people. And uh, she actually got involved in a actual WWE storyline when she was eight years old on a brand called NXT. And she was involved with some wrestlers named Bailey and Sasha Banks. And, uh, you know, Izzy wanted to be a pro wrestler. And now at the age of 16, she has realized that dream and she has wrestled, I think, in three or four pro matches. Um, so, you know, I told their stories. And I'm I'm just checking. I didn't leave anybody out here. Um, <laughs> I guess I got to buy the book to to, to yeah. do that. So I mean, so I, yeah. I just like I mean, it's just so great to show the love of pro wrestling. So you know what kind what what do you like the old days of pro? I mean, I know you're a little younger than I am. Do you like the old days of pro wrestling better than what's can, today? Like I see a lot of moves and lot no storylines anymore as much. Meaning in the ring, there's storylines outside the ring, but there's not really a story told in the ring anymore it's a lot of big moves mm -hmm. and it it's weird i'm gonna probably be thinking about that when i step in the ring for a training sunday just to work, work with some of these guys that they don't know how to tell a story what right. do you think's happened why do you think that it doesn't work what do you think it's more about the death defying feats or do you think it's more about people's mic work in the business and what do you like about the old days compared to the new you know, that's that's a great question. And I find myself torn uh, personally. I am a huge fan of storylines. I am a huge fan of, um, you know, getting the audience involved and kind of getting them hooked to where they want to. You have to get them hooked so they'll tune in every week. Um, and the WWE is fantastic at doing that. They have come up with some storylines over the last three years, mainly one called uh, involving a group called the Bloodline uh, with Roman Reigns and the Usos. And they've they've taken that storyline and, and drug it out for three years. And it's went in so many different directions. But yet it comes back to your central character, who is Roman Reigns, the champion who's held the belt now for three years, which is a rare thing in the business today. I mean, you talk about old school wrestling. Back in the day, you had, you know, Hulk Hogan, who held it for three and a half, four years. And before him, um, you know, Ric Flair held titles for a long time. Um, Bruno, Bruno San Martino, um, who I had a chance to meet years ago at an airport. Wonderful man. I, uh, he's he's missed um, to this day. But, you know, that's a guy who sold out Madison Square Garden every time he wrestled there, uh, which is a feat no one has achieved and, and probably never will. Um, so I think, you know, and then you look at an organization like AEW, um, I have issues with them. I, I try to watch them, but their storytelling is very sparse. And when you talk about the high flying death defying moves, a lot of wrestlers today want to do that. And they're, it's great to watch. It's great to see, but then it, it, I hearken back to what's the point in doing it. Um, why are you going to put yourself through a table going off a steel cage if you're not gaining anything from it but getting that wow factor from the audience see and mick foley did it in a story it made sense he's wrestling right. the undertaker and yes. doing it and it's a hell in a cell against one of the most dangerous men in the world at that time it made sense none of the stuff it makes, makes sense. sense 
Go ahead, Frank. So now I want you to go ahead, Frank, with some couple more questions for, for yeah, what, Jeremy. What, what do you think draws people to pro wrestling? Um, it, obviously, the action, the the, uh, the competition, the fight, but there must be something else. And what what what's in such a personality that uh, what do they why do they want to watch the pro wrestling? Why would they want to do that? You know, I get asked that a lot because my wife can't stand it, and she'll tell. <laughs> She'll tell me, you have a doctorate in education. You're very intelligent. Why are you watching this crap? And I say, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a soap opera. It's a male soap opera. Uh, but now you go to shows, there's as many females in the audience as males. I think it's just the one, you're looking at guys who are the greatest athletes in the world. Um, and then people kind of scoff when I say that, but I'll put any athlete that wrestles in the WWE up against an NFL, NBA, or MLB or hockey player. And I bet that wrestler is a better athlete with the things they can do. And, you know, it's, it's something that people are drawn to because they're like real life superheroes. Uh, people love to talk about Superman and Batman. Well, you have a guy like Hulk Hogan, who was my guy growing up. Um, he was, he was a superhero for, for kids. You know, train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins. It gave us a hero to look up to. Yes. And I think in today's age, people are looking for an out as well. A, a, a couple hours a night where they can just forget their bills, forget their problems at work, forget the problems they may have, may have at home, sit in front of the television and invest themselves in this story that, yeah, some of them are very ridiculous. I give it that. And there's times when I'll turn the channel because I'm like, I, I can't watch this. This is this is like for five year olds. Um, but there's a little something for everybody. Totally. You know, if you like great stories, there's something for you. If you like high flying action, there's something for you. If you like love stories, there's some of that for you. You know, so there's a little something that attracts everybody. And, you know, the thing I don't understand is what happened to the guys that look like superheroes i mean the the bigger guys are and maybe it's potentially because the business is so pushed to do so many more death defying feats and you have to be so athletic now but i think that the missing component of guys that when you walk into a, um a, a let's say a bar or you walk in they look like a wrestler you know i'm a legitimate 610 i'm 280 when i was a wrestler i was 310 315 pounds and I had long hair and I look the part of a wrestler, right? And I will look the part of the wrestler in my comeback, but ultimately I don't need to be the size I needed to be anymore because the business isn't like that. Yeah, there's some guys really big, but not many. Right. You think that right. kind of deludes that now somebody in the crowd could be a superstar? I, I don't know. I, I think that goes back to maybe how we're seeing superheroes today are well, not as... You think they're, they're breakable. What do you what are you thinking of the reason of this whole? Let me give you an example. Um, you know, even CM Punk, what he looked like before to what he ended up looking before, and you're a fa huge fan. He but he took it based on his mic work. If his mic work wasn't as that good, he's not getting pushed that way because he doesn't look larger than life than some of these other stars. Now, I'll talk about specifically somebody like Orange Cassidy or so. None of these guys would have got pushed 20 years ago. They would have got crushed in the ring by someone like me. Is that a good thing for this business? Or do you think we need to go back again to some of the larger than life people again? 
I think it's a great thing because, and, and I can tell you a, a couple reasons why. Uh, when I was in New York for WrestleMania 35 and Kofi Kingston won the title, um, a friend of mine was in tears. And I looked at him and I, I said, why are you crying? And he goes, finally, somebody who looks like me has won the heavyweight title. And at first I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. Well, years later when Bray Wyatt got popular, I was a huge fan because here's a guy that's overweight. He's got a gut. He looks like a normal guy, but yet he is one of the most popular wrestlers in the company. And he looked like me. I could identify with him. And I think that's what's great about bringing these, I don't want to say normal looking guys, but you know, guys that you would maybe see on the street, like a Brian Danielson, a uh, normal size guy, you know, six foot, you know, 190 pounds. I think you have to have a mix. And I think we're running away yeah. from the larger than life. Some of these other guys, and we're, we're looking at their work versus, wow. Could you imagine like, you know, how uh, John Wick was able to beat up that seven foot five guy um, that from the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah. That mm -hmm. made sense because he, he's, he's that dominant, but you can't really make it like a movie. So that's the, 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 the point. I don't know if story or storylines and probably is an easier way to work now than yeah. when I worked, because guess what? I would get the bushwhackers to say, you don't take a bump from this guy. You don't take a bump from this guy. It's got to look real. Now all these guys are taking bumps from small guys. So go yeah. figure how stories and life goes. Frank, any other questions? This is just intriguing for sure before we have to let him go. Yeah, I mean, it was. It is very intriguing. And uh, I learned a lot about pro wrestling. Uh, what about uh, how where, where the strength come in? Uh, is it all strength or is there other other things in BNB in becoming a pro wrestler? Oh, I think, you know, in today's, a you know, in today's wrestling, uh, you, you have to have not only strength, but agility, flexibility, uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of mental uh, preparedness. You need to be mentally tough as well, because the grind of, of the travel and dealing with the fans and putting yourself over, you know, there's a lot of guys who will stay in character. Uh, you know, 24 seven. I mean, look at a guy like the undertaker who for years, nobody would see him anywhere out of character. Uh, now today you'll see him at, he'll go to football games. He'll go to basketball games. And now he just goes by Mark Calloway and he he's like a normal guy, but you know, and same with Hulk Hogan. It's sometimes, and I think today it's still even hard sometimes when you, when you see Hulk out, um, it's hard to decipher. Are you watching Terry Bollea? Or are you talking to Hulk Hogan? And I think he sometimes forgets which, yeah. which he is, totally. if he's playing a character, if he's if he's playing, okay. you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think there's a lot that goes into it, uh, not just being, you know, muscular, because there's a lot of wrestlers who, you know, like the Miz, who's a great, great wrestler. Uh, he's going to be a Hall of Famer when his career is done, but he's entertaining. You have to have you have to be able to act. You have to be it's able a to mix. Yeah. yeah, it's got to be a, a good mix. And I think so. Uh, where's the best place people can buy your book and learn more about you? Where can they go? So the best place people can find the book is on Amazon. Uh, I also have it on barnesandnoble.com, but right now I'm running a sale on it on Amazon. So that's the best place to get it. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Jeremy. Thank you very much. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and, and, uh, and the Author's Corner, guys. Take care.
We're back to Neil Haley show. My guest today is Dr. Jack Rocco, and he's going to talk about why he became an author, but we're going to kind of go back to why he became a doctor first. So Dr. Jack, thanks for stopping by. You know, what made you want to get in this profession, especially being a surgeon too? That's pretty impressive. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I would say that the, um, well, thank you, but, um, thanks for having me as well. But, um, you know, I can I attribute a lot of the uh, my profession into the influence of my grandfather early on. You know, I mean, we I grew up blue collar Erie guy, Erie Pennsylvania, and uh, my grandfather was an old time Italian guy. You know, immigrated from from Italy, and uh, he used to build grandfather clocks in his basement. And I, I swear to God, you know, and I would help him with the grandfather clocks and. You know, I mean, I always attributed that to my just I loved working with my hands and building things and thinking in 3D. Um, but I also was, you know, I was good in school. I, I you know, I enjoyed uh, science and math and did well in school, uh, went to Pitt for undergrad, then was accepted to medical school, just following that science, uh, that science, uh, you know, thread. Um, and then once I was in medical school, you know, I was I said I was I, there weren't any of the other doctors in my family. I you know was the first uh, first to college, first in medical school and um you know went in with an open mind, you know what kind of doctor was I going to be and I I played sports, played football and wrestled a little bit and um you know orthopedics was the thing that you know I was most attracted to, you know, treating sports injuries, you know, but also like I said thinking in 3D fixing things, hammers, chisels, saw, right. all those things I grew up with um, really attracted me and, uh, you know, kind of a weird way to get about it. But, you know, I, I can't I can't negate his uh, his influence on those decisions, you know, later in life and was very, very, right. very happy with it. Were you ever a fan of Dr. Freddie Fu if you were an orthopedic oh, surgeon? Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I, he, I he operated on me. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he you know, I oper I uh, I rotated through Pitt's program. His partner, Chris Harner, uh, fixed my ACL. And I think okay. that also, you know, you know, Harner was just starting with Foo. They were, they were partners. It was like 87 when I had my ACL surgery. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then later ended up rotating with Harner and got to meet Freddie Foo firsthand in both the OR and the office. He was just, just so smart. Amazing guy. Amazing yeah. guy. So smart and so full of energy. Just, you know, great guy. Yeah, I think I got my uh, bone spurs removed uh, arthroscopic after playing at Western Maryland College, playing college basketball there the first year, which is now called McDaniel College in 1992. So I think I got it removed in 93. So, yeah, that's when I got my surgery. So I remember those days, but went yeah. to Foo and, you know, but then, uh, you know, what happens when you have those arthroscopic surgeries? And I think you see it a lot of times is that it, it becomes something that ends up nagging people the older they get. So they got to oh, yeah. take care of I themselves. Mean, yeah. You know, I mean, life goes on, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, at, at this point I've had three surgeries on my knee, you know, I mean, I had, you know, I had my ACL and then I was stiff afterwards. So Harner, you know, had to go in and shave some more things out and manipulate me and, you know, break up the scar tissue. And then probably when I was in my forties, you know, time catches up to you and, uh, you know, so like I was, I was like that guy on the hair club, you know, not only was I, uh, I was, a, I was a patient and then I bought the call, you know, then I, and I bought the company, you know, it's like, I, I had the bad knees and then I became an orthopedic surgeon. So yeah, go fit and, and, and that thing. So why the book, why did you write a book? 
Yeah, I um, you know, the book, you know, I, I I talk about it in the book. You know, it started off as my therapy, you know, and you know, I think guys handle things differently, you know. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't know if I needed therapy. I didn't want to talk to a therapist. I don't know, you know, I'm one of those guys I would go to a therapist and I would try to tell them what it is I thought they wanted me to say or try and analyze myself. So, you know, I started, I went through a separation and divorce. And, you know, found myself down in North Carolina and just trying to figure stuff out. And, um, you know, so I started journaling and I started writing stories and just kind of really for myself, you know, to figure it out. You know, like I said, I didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't know where to start with a therapist. So I just started like, you know, you, you get divorced, you get separated, you just start thinking, you know. Well, and that's said, that's where you get your transition is I got through a separation and divorce uh, just a short time ago. And I was in Dallas for a couple of years, then came back to Pittsburgh. And I've really, you know, learned a lot about myself. And it's funny, once I came back to Pittsburgh is when really my transformation came to really identify some of the areas that I needed to improve. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't during the separation. Somehow we get in this mode where we don't, we're constantly in this kind of fight or flight. And then mm -hmm. I really used self-hypnosis and things like that to, to cure a lot of the pain that you go through in a process like that. Yeah. You know, and I treat guys all day long, you know, and, my, and have, you know, I was in the service and I have guys come in to me, you know, and, you know, these are guys that, you know, they were in charge of 300 men in the military. They were kicking right. ass and taking no prisoners. And, you know, then they get out of the service and it's like, yeah, we got a nice job for you working at the Walmart distribution center, you know, driving a forklift. And, you know, I think these guys, you know, they get thrown on the shelf after their, you know, and, you know, and then separation and divorce and, and these things. And, you know, it's a horrible thing for guys, you know, and, and haven't gone through it. And, you know, so now I'm down in North Carolina by myself. I'm journaling, I'm writing. Um, and for me, you know, I stumble. It's it's been one of these like 800 pound gorillas in the room, you know, my adoption story, you know, yeah. and, you know, the book is basically my adoption story. That's what it comes down to, you know, and it's like a lot of these things, you know, adoptees talk about a lot of these things out in, you know, social media. And there's this, this sense of like stolen identity. There's this sense of, you know, loss of control, loss of um, sense of belonging, you know, and, you know, Steve Jobs when it was adopted, a lot of people don't necessarily know that. Oh. And, you know, both sides of his character, if you really look at it, are classic for, you know, the adoptee mindset. You know, it's this like, you know, hyper driven, you know, hyper vigilant, you know, always trying to prove themselves type of guy, you know, but also this like, you know, difficult to work with difficult to, you know, he wasn't. So do you think that you were difficult to work with in your life? Oh, I, I would say absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, like I said, for me digging into it, a lot of it is this confusion of identity. You know, it's this, um, you know, who am I? And, the, and then, you know, I mean, so my adoption story is that as I, you know, as I evolved the book, it, um, you know, my, my ex-wife was the one who initiated the search. And like all of a sudden at 40, at 40, I find out, you know, I get a call from the state. Like my wife, you know, she wanted me to, she wanted me to look for my, you know, she was pregnant. 
wanted me to look, you know, she's like, don't you want to find your birth mother? And I'm like, not really. And she's like, but don't you think the kids should know their medical history? I'm like, no, they know me. I'm healthy. You know, I don't have any problems. She's like, but don't you think they should know? I'm like, no. You know, and, and then, she, you know, she kind of continued. I'm like, no, 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 I don't. And um, eventually she's like, what if I get the paperwork and sign it? Will you, you know, will you, uh, or if I get the paperwork and fill it out, will you sign it? So I'm like, sure. You know, so I signed the paperwork. And then three years later, they call and they say, here's your mother. You know, here's her name. Here's her address. Here's her phone number. You know, and it's like, boom. You're like, really? You know, and then. And then I get this, I get this, you know, transcript in the mail a little while later. And this was the real bombshell. You know, I, you know, I grew up this Italian kid, Erie, Pennsylvania, you know, 100% Italian, 120% Italian, you know. And um, I get this transcript and the judge says, is your name Joyce Tice? Yes, sir. Are you the mother of this Negro child? I'm like, Negro child? Who's the Negro child? You know, what, did she have another baby or something? You know, and, uh, and it's like, and it turns out my father was mixed race. My father was raised, considered himself huh. African-American. His family was 100%. You know, I got an uncle who was a Black Panther in the 60s. Oh. I, got an, I got another uncle who was drafted by the Vikings and then eventually, you know, was drafted into Vietnam and came back. You know, so now, and, and it turns out my mother, my birth mother, she came in on the Mayflower. You know, so I go from this Italian kid you know, Erie, Pennsylvania, blue collar, working class. Next thing I know, I'm this pilgrim Thanksgiving Mayflower descendant. And I'm also a descendant from a slave ship. And it's like, uh, you, you know, how do you put this all together into an identity? You know, I've got the immigrant ship with my grandfather. So it changes who you think you are thanks to that search. And that's what's happened, it sounds like. Everything Absolutely. you thought you were is not who you are. Right. But then also, you know, as this, as this steel door is opened, you're like, no shit. Like I could have told you that, you know, there's this, like I said, once that, you know, I said, and I'm on the other side of adoptees call this phenomenon, you know, coming out of the fog, you know, and I think a lot of children, I mean, I, I've since learned, you know, a lot of adoptees really struggle with identity. If they, you know, I fairly well assimilated with my family. I was lucky. I was blessed. I was chosen. You know, all these great things that you you need to be grateful for. And, and I was. Um, but then also you look back and you're like, you know what? I didn't feel totally comfortable in this role as an adopted child. I didn't, you know, like I had other facets. I had other identities that were kind of, you know, hidden underneath the veil of the veil of shame and guilt, you know? So then fast forward, you know, so now I'm, I'm like, okay, you know, so I, I meet my birth mother, I meet my birth father's family and I'm like, all right, I get this, you know, we're, um, you know, I'm cool with it. Like it all makes sense to me. All those tendencies I had, all those, whatever stereotypes, you know, I ran track, I had, you know, Brillo pad hairdo. And, you know, I mean, I had a little Afro hair. Um, and so you start to put these pieces together. So I'm like, I tell my sister, I'm like, Lisa, I'm going to tell mom and dad about this. She's like, oh no, Jack, that is not a good idea. You know, I'm like, Lisa, you know, we, mom and dad need to know it. I think the nuns lied to them. They didn't tell them the truth back then. And, um, you know, so she's, she's like, I don't know, they're both old. They're not going to take this, you know? So I go and I tell my parents and there's like, you know, two bottles of wine for liquid courage for, you know, my mother's like, Oh, Jack, I can't believe you, you know, it's, 
it, it's tr difficult on all sides of the, you know, all sides of the fence. So then my father through his tears and red face and shaking, he's like, Jack, we already knew all that. I'm like, knew what? I didn't even tell you anything. And he goes, everyone in the family had to know before we brought you home. I'm like, know what? You know, that my father was black. And he goes, yeah. So it's like my parents knew all along for 52 years. They knew that I was mixed race from the start. They knew my story and just chose not to tell me. So do you yeah, feel so that that led to the separation and divorce is finding your, who you really were? I, I think it contributed. I can't, I can't deny that there was definitely a contribution to it, but just that. And I've talked to many adoptees since then. And, you know, they're like, oh yeah, same thing happened to me. Oh yeah. When I found out it just, it resets everything. It makes you, it makes you, you know, you talk about, you know, imposter syndrome, or just like I said, resetting your resetting your, you know, your whole view on life, you know, you're like, who would I have been? And in the book, I in the book, I refer to that that child who was given away, or that child that I was before I was given away. You know, that child who bonded with his mother for nine months in the womb, you know, who wow. was, you know, she was your soil, she was, you know, you heard her voice, you know, and there's science that proves all this. You know, I felt her heartbeat, her breath, her vibe, her rhythm, her flow. You know, it's just, you know, this is your person, you know, and typically you're born and you cuddle and you nurse, you yep. know, and there's a lot of talk about that early trauma of, of, you know, birth relinquishment. And, you know, now this child's like put under the heat lamp, sent to an orphanage, sent to a foster home, sent to another family, sent to another family. You know, and they never really have that opportunity to really bond with their mother. I know if you think about it, you wouldn't do that to a dog. You wouldn't buy a dog that you took immediately from their mother. No. Yet we do it routinely with with adopted kids, and especially during wow. those days. And it's deep, and I know we don't have time for all this. No, no, I like this as a bit first thing. I definitely think that you could build a huge community with the, what you're doing uh, with adoptees. It's a great uh, way to really build a huge community of your story. Your story is just powerful, but I didn't expect to talk even this long, you know, cause we have short interviews because we do many different guests, but where's the best place people can find information on your book and learn more about you. Where can they go? Yeah. I mean, the easiest thing is, uh, you know, amazon.com, you know, and the book is called recycled. That was my grandfather's word, you know, old Italian guy. He called all those kids who weren't like real kids who weren't like, a, you know, kids that were like, you know, half kids or step kids or whatever. He goes, he told me one time, he's like, Jack, you know, I think we got more recycled kids and we got our own now. So I write that as like, and an honor, you know, wow. I, I titled it for him as like an honor to him. Um, you know, but it's, but the second, the subtitle is, you know, it's recycled, um, a reluctant search for true self through nurture, nature, and free will. So I get into all of that, you know, who was my natural self? Who was my nurtured self? What choice did I have in the free will decisions I made mm. and trying to put that all together into one identity? It's a, that's it's powerful. A freaking, it's a freaking trip of a book. You know, I mean, it's something that you just never think about. And you think about these identity crises we go through or challenges like a divorce, like separation, you're looking at, you're mentioning adoption, but there's other types of things that literally change who you are. You went through that separation divorce, but ultimately 
you went through a lot of other stuff that needed to work out too, like losing a loved one during a time of all those different trials. It shapes you as a human being for the rest of your, your life's next quarter century or longer of life. And people mm -hmm. just don't get that because we constantly grow and change. Appreciate it. Yeah. Doctor. Thank you so much. Right. I appreciate you. All right. Listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Author's Corner with our host, Frank Fiore. Frank, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guests. We really have a health kick going on today, Frank, with different conversations, don't we? Uh, keeping that keeping that uh, vibe going about healthy in 2024, don't we, Frank? Yep, yep. So far, so good. And uh, being healthy is what you want to do. And I'm feeling well and I'm really looking forward to what Heidi has to present. Yes. To do that. Yes. Our guest today is Heidi Often. How are you, Heidi? And uh, you're going to talk to about how you got involved in the alternative health field. Tell us how that happened. Oh, thank you so much, Neil, for having me on today. Um, well, it was out of necessity. Uh, I wasn't getting well uh, going the normal channels uh, with Western allopathic medicine. So I had to take matters into my own hands and do the research and uh, figure out how to uh, heal myself and uh, get my life back. That's you know, key. So we hear more and more about taking your health into your hands and we're hearing more and more about that. And I, I'm just, I'm just wondering if uh, this COVID th the thing that we went through where people were getting cross information and some people saying, I'm, I'm going to make my own decisions on my health and not what the, uh, uh, powers that be do but anyway you're like you're correct and that more and more people are working up to the fact that you know i, I really got to take control of my health yes uh, exactly i mean western medicine is is great uh if you have acute issues that need to be addressed right away if you're having a heart attack you have to go to the hospital you know get that Absolutely. taken care of but once a, an ailment turns chronic, uh, Western medicine you know, has some limitations. And so what I do, I do energy scanning of the body's energy field using technology. And so we go much deeper than blood tests and imaging studies. And fundamentally, the body's energy. And so mm -hmm. we can see in the energy field where the body has weakness and disresonance. And then we use homeopathic remedies to help put those areas back into balance again. So it goes much further. And um, I'm a researcher and I look for answers and I look for causes. And that's the only way we're going to get well is if we address the cause. Heidi, and that's so true. And kind of give us an example. Let's say some of the people you've worked with to help. Give me an example of what you've done. Well, what I've just uh, completed doing is writing a guide on rheumatoid arthritis. And what I have found with that is, uh, and it's no mystery if we do the research, um, a doctor back in uh, 190, he was born in 1906, passed in 1989, Dr. McPherson Brown. He put the connection between uh, rheumatoid arthritis and mycoplasma. And so he was treating his patients with antibiotics and they were getting well. They didn't have to suffer and be on drugs for an extended period of time, years and years and years, like they are today with rheumatoid arthritis. They're on some serious drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. So I've helped guide patients in that arena, um, showing them literature and direction and, and guidance and uh, plans to, to help them uh, get their life back. 
And uh, whether it's chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, lupus, there's answers to all of these. And with the scanning, we see that. We see the the, the pathogens that come up with this. Um, things in their in their mouth, their teeth could sit on a meridian that's causing some issues. Uh, it's very comprehensive. Seems like it. And I and st- something like fibromyalgia. Explain specifically how you can treat something like that through your scanning. Well, we make homeopathic remedies, frequencies, which basically it's frequencies. And um, so with the scanning, we'll see where in the body there's disresonance. What, what we're picking up on, various things could be contributing to the fibromyalgia. Uh, predominantly, um, microbes are related to this. We'll see the microbes come up on the scan and uh, give frequencies for those microbes. And um, perhaps they're you know, energy's low, CoQ10 would be a recommendation for that. Um, we have to help the body, you know, heal itself. So it's, it's may lose some, may not have the minerals, the proper minerals uh, in balance to uh, achieve good health. So it's a combination of many things that contribute to these health challenges. Frank, again, right. what question do you have about scanning and the energy? It's interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, well, right. this is this is nothing new. Um, it's kind of new to to us because it's not mainstream. This got developed back uh, in Germany in the 1940s and 50s, mm. and so this is nothing really new. And you know, Germany specifically, they they uh, really specialize in homeopathy. Uh, Dr. Hahnemann, who is the doctor of homeopathy, that he's from Germany, he discovered all of this, and so. We're just kind of new to it because uh, it's not mainstream and it's kind of been uh, held down. But we actually had homeopathy hospitals at the turn of the century, but then things transitioned over to uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, Rockefeller medicine. All right. So talk about what is what is a scan? What do you mean by a scan? How do you, if I said I had some, one of those chronic diseases, what would I do to work with you? How do I get a scan done? Uh, you would just send me some saliva, fingernails, hair. And from that, we uh, put it on the technology here and we're able to decipher the uh, vibrational uh, disresonance uh, in the body. And we scan over 50,000 frequencies to see where these imbalances are. And um, it's uh, we look at nutritional deficiencies, your teeth, your nervous system, cardiovascular system, specific scans for those particular body parts to offer those supporting frequencies. Because the body understands frequencies because we are we are energy. Yeah, and that's exactly, if you look at uh, focusing on the law of attraction, a lot of the other laws and all that, when it comes to uh, ways that we have use energy to create things through our body, that is the same thing when it comes to health and you're able to kind of identify that from your scans. It sounds like. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it goes much further than blood tests and imaging studies. Uh, we're 50, do you do the blood tests and imaging studies as well or not? No, no, no. You're, no, you're in, a, you're in a, a different way. So uh, it's intriguing. Where can people get the guide? Where can they go? Uh, they can go to my website, uh, vitalityenergywellness.com. And send me a uh, inquiry with their name and email and phone number, and uh, we can talk about it. And I can, you know, guide them through uh, the process. And uh, in fact, I I'll, I can give them a free guide if if they're willing to 
do a scan with me. Uh, otherwise, it's just a, a nominal fee for the guide. And I can be their coach and guide them and give them advice and uh, help them answer questions. Basically, I've put everything very concise to the point in this guide to, to uh, show them the steps to take to get information to uh, get them uh, on their way to feeling better. Well, it's intriguing. I look forward to having another conversation with you. Thanks again, Heidi. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you.